Witty, thought-provoking, and uplifting, Southern Soul Livestream is a program that you'll invite your friends over to watch every week where you'll learn about interesting guests and get to share in their fascinating experiences. Tune in each Thursday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern to connect with guests from across the generations and to laugh with our eclectic hosts who are as charming as they are talented. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here's our host, Calvin. This week's show, we have a cool show this week because I've really, really been excited about this. You know, coming up first is the speaker, Dr. Jenny. And then coming up for our second segment is going to be Dr. Rhonda Maddox. And one reason I'm excited is because Dr. Rhonda Maddox has been doing such good work. She's not your average doctor. She is out there and she is on the scene. You'll catch her all over the internet doing her thing. And I was like, we got to get you over here at Southern Soul to talk about the things that you're seeing through the lens of mental health and access. And after we speak with Dr. Maddox, I keep wanting to say something else, but we're going to have a discussion and it's going to be a discussion so you guys can get warmed up is... Where do you guys see the gap in social justice when it pertains to mental health? The theme is what happened recently in the New York City subway. You guys remember that performer, that young man who was a Michael Jackson performer? Well, he was performing. And if, if you do a Google search, you'll discover that he was on New York's top 50 homeless people or people in jeopardy who needed access to mental health. So I got some questions for the audience tonight, and we're going to talk about that. So I'm curious to see what you guys think about this. But before we go there, we want to get started with Dr. Jenny Vasquez Newman. And I'm so excited about her because her book, Untapped Leadership, has been flowing off of my lips as I began to talk about the show. People are like, well, what's the show going to be about? What are you doing? I said, you got to understand, it's going to be Dr. Jenny. Dr. Jenny is going to be doing this untapped leadership, but I don't want to kind of spoil it. What I want to do is bring Dr. Jenny to the forefront and let her begin to tell us about not only her experience, but her work in untapped leadership. Welcome, Dr. Jenny. Thank you so much, Calvin. It's so good to be here. This is so far, the best interview I've had because this is such a vibe. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, before we get started, let's just start with introductions, right? Tell the people a little bit about you. We call it the origin story. You know, here at Soul Thursday, Southern Soul, we like to know where you come from, you know, who are your people, right? Tell yeah. us a little bit about who you are, where you come from, where you live, and a few things that you're proud of. Yeah, absolutely. So hi, everyone. It's so good to be here. Um, I am originally from Southern California, uh, born and raised uh, in San Diego County. I'm now in L.A. and I uh, actually am biracial. So my uh, family is of Cuban descent. So they immigrated to the States uh, actually during the Cuban Revolution in the 60s. So um, I am, uh, you know, first generation here in, in the States. And um, that Cuban background has been a big part of my story, and that immigrant story has been a big part of it, of me. Um, but I do identify as a biracial, and so I um, am also uh, Egyptian, and my I didn't grow up with the Egyptian side of my family or know my dad, um, but I think being a kind of multiracial identity has been a big part of my leadership story, which I talk about a lot. Um, and so that's a little bit of my my origin of kind of being 
here in SoCal, um, Cuban immigrants, um, only child of a single mother and um, really a background in education that that really was instilled by her into me. And so that's awesome. Me. Awesome. Well, thank you for sharing that. Let's talk a little bit about untapped leadership. You know, can you tell us about your inspiration behind founding, establishing untapped leaders in your book, Untapped Leadership? Yeah. So my background, as I mentioned, um, is in education. Um, so I've worked uh, for the last few decades in education in, in the nonprofit sector, also in um, higher education, um, and I've also done a lot of work around leadership development. So my most recent role has been uh, as vice president of training and programs at a civic leadership institute. Um, and that's where I kind of developed leadership programs, um, facilitated sessions, and you know did quite a, a bit of work uh, here in the LA region for folks from high school to executives. Um, and you know, I have to say, it, 2020 came around. Um, it was a core shaking year for me, as it was, I think, for a lot of us. Um, and on the heels of George Floyd's murder, I just really had this moment of reflecting of, you know, how am I using my time and talent on this earth? Um, and how have I been complicit and complacent in what I'm seeing happening? Um, and so there was that moment that kind of tr trigger moment for me that made me realize that after doing all this work in leadership, after studying it in academia, um, you know, uh, facilitating it in practice, almost 100% of the material was developed by white men, like folks that just do not look like me, probably didn't have someone like me in mind um, when they were writing. Um, it just didn't, uh, you know, it didn't have my perspectives as a, as a Black woman, as a biracial woman. Um, and so that's where the uh, beginnings of Untapped Leadership, the book, started. So as I was working as a VP, I started writing and started just really researching and and um connecting with other you know leaders of color on their strategies their experiences um how they navigate spaces that haven't really been built by us or for us um and really thinking about the just ingenuity and skill that exists in in doing that and still like thriving and leading and being able to do that um and so that really was like the the crux of it. I was trying to elbow some room in this leadership space because it still is very dominated by white men. Um, and, and that's not the full story. And we all, I think a lot of us here know that uh, on the call, like, that is not the full story. And so untapped leaders as an organization, you know, I honestly, as I was writing, I realized, well, I have to do something about this in the day to day. It can't just be this book and it can't just be sitting on a shelf. Um, there's a lot that we can activate through this work. And so that's where I shifted out of my prior role into launching Untapped Leaders as an organization where we are a leadership development uh, organization that centers marginalized perspectives that really is grounded in the, those overlooked perspectives um, because there's a lot of power there um, that I think hasn't been given its due light. And so that's, yeah, that's been the journey. Uh, so it's been great. Awesome. Awesome. You know, I get excited when I hear your story and I tell you why. Is anyone who's ever been in a leadership role in corporate or in, a, um, as I called it, leading in white spaces, 
you begin to get this feeling, right? This feeling of, you know, that you have these God-given talents, right? That you grew up through your community that you may have developed in your church and you know you're good at it. But when you begin to step in these spaces, let's call them these white spaces, you begin to realize that these gifts, these talents may not be valued or appreciated. And it gives you somewhat pause. Mm-hmm. I get excited because I love what you begin to call your book in your program, Untapped Leaders, because you begin to talk about, wait a minute. And I love leadership books, by the way. I love self-help books. Yeah. And then it hit me. What you said is true is that the majority in business school of all of these books, let's just go ahead and say all of them, all mm-hmm. books written by white men. So then you're like, wait a minute, how in the world could this be? This is no way that leadership can be defined by one segment of the population. So I really enjoyed that. I got excited about it. Tell me this, as we're talking about your leadership development program, how do you incorporate DEI? And DEI, I think it's a, it's, it's a cool word, but I've been hearing like uh-huh. some, some, some change in the tide, you know, like, hey, it was cool, but now it's less cool. But tell us yeah. about how you incorporate DEI principles in your leadership development program. I mean, I think honestly, the it's the core of the work. Um, so it's not even an incorporation. It's the like foundation of it. Uh, you know, my work, I always say that I sit at the intersection of leadership development and DEI. Um, but really what this is, is um, valuing, censoring, amplifying, giving uh, voice and and credence to uh, those perspectives, those DEI, quote unquote, DEI perspectives that should have been there from the jump. Um, and so it really is, you know, this idea that it, I, as I'm, as we're kind of talking about leadership development from the untapped leaders perspective, I, I will always stand behind that, like where we experience kind of marginalization in any way, um, for a variety of our identities, a variety of our experiences, as you named, that actually gives us like an essential standpoint from which to lead from, because we're then better equipped to understand the nature of things, the nature of, you know, um, uh, dynamics of organizations of, you know, just ways that we're seeing the world. And so for me, the DEI is so central to it that it's not even like an incorporation of it. If if that makes sense. Like, I, I think, what we're seeing a lot of in the organizations is that DEI, after George Floyd, honestly, um, was like a huge incorporation of it. Like do everyone's doing DEI, a lot of this, that everywhere. Um, a lot of people hired, great. Um, and now we're seeing that this tide shift um, that as the economy uh, buckles a little bit, you know, these programs are being cut near like, you know, these positions are going away and their hiring is not happening. The budgets are not there. And that I think is a surefire sign of how this never was at the core of any of these organizations. It was like a nice to have a something that we were doing. Um, and, and now I think they, you know, organizations are going to suffer because they, they're just kind of letting these things go. And so I think the way I'm trying to approach this work and, maybe this quote unquote DI work is to come at it from this leadership standpoint, proving that those that have been, you know, maybe enveloped into this DEI 
mechanism actually have the answers and the perspectives and the experience to lead these organizations. And so that's where I'm trying to like show. Awesome. Awesome. You know, I remember, um, I think one of the first trainings I did, and it was like, even before, um, it was a thing. I don't even know what they called it back then, but it was a male leadership program and it was people of color. And I remember one of the questions they asked, they asked, Hey, when you wake up in the morning, what is your first thought? Your first thought of identity. Mm. And I was surprised at some of the answers. Some of the guys are like, well, my first thought of identity is that I'm a very handsome man. I'm like, that's your first thought. <laughs> and the other guy was like, well, I'm a dad and I'm a provider. I'm like, that's your first thought. Yeah. And then a few other people were like, I'm a black man in America. And it began to really help me see how the range of when you first wake up with your first thought of identity. And I love the fact that even though the tide is changing, that you are not changing and that you are mm-hmm. staying the course because you know that, like you said, the answers a lot of times are in these people who have been marginalized. So thank you for sharing that. Right. I, I want to kind of just talk a little bit about your story, right? Your personal story as, as you identify as a biracial woman in a leadership space. How have you faced challenges and how have you had to overcome such challenges? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, speaking candidly, like one of the biggest challenges that I reflect upon throughout uh, my career is this battle with, quote unquote, imposter syndrome. Um, You know, I felt it quite a bit, even before I had that language when in school, like in um, high school, as early as those days, uh, being in the honors and AP classes and not seeing maybe one other student that looked like me, but other than that, that was it. Um, and, uh, you know, my voice shrank then and it stayed pretty shrunk um, all through my entire academic career up until my doctoral program. Um, And, you know, I think I never felt comfortable with what I could contribute because of, um, you know, just this sense of otherness. And and so that really clouded me for quite a while. Um, And, you know, I kind of carried that on my shoulders into professional work um, and that doesn't shed easily. Uh, And you know, I have to say, like, I, it, it's taken some time. And then again, in more recent realizations in flipping the narrative for myself on like, what actually is imposter syndrome? I don't actually think I'm the imposter. I think I'm just receiving messages from the environments I'm in that I'm an imposter, either implicit or explicit. It doesn't have to be like, you know, anything malicious, but if I'm not seeing folks that I identify with, or, you know, I'm, I'm all in this leadership space and I'm reading these books that are by people that don't I, I don't identify with, then that just kind of fueled, fueled it for me. And so I think that was really one of the biggest kind of challenges for me in sitting with my identities and, and like battling through that awareness uh, to flip it back onto like the systems. It's not a personal deficit. It's a systemic deficit. And and I'm giving myself grace for having felt this way for a while. Um, so wow. I just reject it now. <laughs> wow. I just reject it completely. Yeah. You have just given one of my favorite 
explanations or description of this term, imposter syndrome. I never liked it. Yeah. You know, just coming from came, you know, I'm like Dr. Mimi, you know, I ain't no punk, right? You know, I just, you know, I had, I just grew up with a certain type of grit and toughness, right? Mm -hmm. So, and then when I heard this term imposter syndrome, I'm like, huh? I just couldn't really grab it, right? Yeah. But I like the way you describe it. You're yeah. like, I may not necessarily feel like an imposter, but if you look at an environment where it's one of me and nine of everybody else, naturally you could feel like an outsider. Have a question. Yeah. It yeah. just starts to seep in. And, 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 uh, and you, I like the way you put it back on the system, right? Because the system created such an environment. Yeah. And I actually believe that certain environments may perpetuate or mm -hmm. desire some form of imposter syndrome, right? Because I don't know why, but it's just, I'm like, what? No, not, yeah. not how I'm made, right? So, you know, kudos to you because I'm just thinking a lot as you kind of go through this, you know, you've actually begin to wear different hats, right? Where you begin to, you know, become a mom and begin to evolve as an educator, as a leader. Do you mind sharing with us, you know, because, you know, here at Soul Thursday, we like when people just kind of share their stories and things like that. How yeah. how did life, you know, kind of evolve your whole, like, give it, becoming mom kind of evolve you a little bit or change you a little bit when it comes to your leadership style? Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> becoming a parent for any parents on the line, it's just like smash you around real quick if you weren't ready. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, there were some pivotal moments for me in thinking about like parenthood, motherhood and leadership. Um, and my first son was born in 2016 and I was, you know, working at a uh, institution of higher ed, big university um, great benefits. I'll say that, like, you know, that as far as the amount of leave I got, I got, did have access to, you know, um, those things that people talk about as far as like, uh, parent support and, and, and mother support in those spaces. But I just remember like the first day coming back from leave, um, going into the office ready for like the onslaught that was going to be there. Um, and wonder like, how does anyone actually do this. This is not, yeah, this was just not, it was too much. Um, I just really thought like, yes, you know, I have the, the health insurance, I have these benefits, um, but I didn't have a flexible workplace. I had to be there really late, um, had to navigate all the like, you know, mental gymnastics, navigating like interpersonal, you know, relationships and power and like dynamics. And, and I just felt so depleted at the end of the day um, for, for, for a long time. Um, and I think that just showed me that, you know, there's a lot of things that are not working. Um, I think the pandemic really exacerbated that for a lot of working parents. Um, but I think that well, a lot of that was there beforehand. Um, and I don't think that, again, kind of connecting back to leadership. And for me, what I did, I had to self-preserve. I got very adamant about boundaries and adamant about like protecting not just like time boundaries, but like mental boundaries, um, because I needed to be well resourced to raise a little human and to be like a good person, like all these other things. And I just always will ever, I'll never forget that moment um, of like, oh, this is not going to work. Um, and, and how that just shifted me into a closer version of the type of leadership I wanted to practice where I would be well-resourced, um, you know, ideally well-rested, you know, not in those early days, but like just doing it differently. I'm not going to overextend myself for a job. Um, so I, that's what, that was my takeaway. So I think it's, 
it's one of those things that we have to learn these lessons from all these different angles. Um, and that doesn't have to be from just work. Um, I learned it from my own child um, and what I needed to give. Wow. Thanks for sharing that. You know, I'm always curious at how people, you know, they have that moment. And um, I don't know what to call a moment, but it's just like a, a aha moment. Uh -huh. Right. Yeah. And as you paint a picture, I see you walking into the office after being on maternity leave. I see you switching from this maternal being into all of a sudden this environment that may be cutthroat competitive. And I That's see right. how much it can drain you because, you know, your heart is different and your mind is different. And you just walk into this place. It's it just it paints a quite vivid picture. That's right. I'm excited okay. about the upcoming book. Tamika's dropped it in the chat. Tell us about Thank your you. book, what they should expect, where they can get it, because I think it's going on sale pretty soon. Tell us about the book. It is. Thank you. Yes, it's on pre-order now. It drops June 15th. Um, and Untapped Leadership is, again, the uh, the response to the centuries of like <laughs> uh, perspectives that have not included us. Um, and so that really is what the book is about. Uh, so, you know, it's uh, split up into three sections, one being kind of a critical examination of like all these theories that we've kind of talked about and looking at like all the ways we've excluded our perspectives, other perspectives, anyone else, and like the, the damage that that has done. Um, so really kind of a critical a look and critical eye of like why we're still seeing you know, white men predominantly in the CEO roles in these top positions. And I, I do attach it to this definition of leadership that is antiquated. Um, but then I get into like the the stories from, from leaders. So I actually interviewed quite a few uh, leaders from across industries, across backgrounds, all kind of identify as BIPOC. Um, and they share their narratives. They share their stories. We're trying to, um, you know, uh, share kind of the the other perspectives that have been overlooked and so through the second part of that that the book i offer those uh through conversations around kind of what i call contortion and how we sometimes have to bend into uh you know ways that are unnatural just to navigate in our, these spaces or um i i challenge imposter syndrome head on i really kind of tackle these topics all with the lens of uh, folks that were experiencing and sharing their own stories through that. Um, but then ultimately, then the last section, it is about like the now what, like what can we take and do based off of what we're learning from BIPOC leaders um, or folks that have been racially marginalized. Um, so I offer uh, tools for organizations, which I think that's where like the crux of the work is. This is not a book, for, it is a book for us, by us, but it's not for us, like it's kind of our like you know claim that we're it's our um yeah a celebration in celebration of us but it is a tool for organizations and for others to learn to think about how they're really exercising leadership in a way that is effective and inclusive of of everybody so um there's a lot in there i hope you know you all enjoy i love the feedback um and and just starting the conversation of like what what this might mean for all of us 
Awesome. You know, I, I, I love how you described it because I was thinking of my next question. I was like, well, who's the audience? But you really kind of mm. spelled it out. I could see the audience being like, hey, a part of the, the where the problem exists is in these organizations, right? Yeah. And there are organizations and leadership challenges there. So that's the third part of the book. But right. then at the same time, it's the stories, it's the testimonies in the middle where these people of color are just telling their stories. Mm-hmm. And then I like in the beginning of the book how you begin to define the problem. And I think that's awesome because I can begin to see the audience be people was like, hey, if you're feeling some kind of way, if you're in leadership and you're kind of struggling, this book is for you to not only to see the problem, but articulate the problem and then turn around to your leadership team. Be like, this is what y'all need to try to do something somewhat better. As I begin to wrap up, I have another question for you. You know, part of it is next what for you. But at the same time, I want to give a get a little advice out of you for the audience out there. Mm. For the people who are in the audience now or listen to this replay when it publishes, what advice would you give someone who are just starting in their leadership mm-hmm. journey. Last week, we had a young lady talk about, hey, she's just starting her leadership journey and she's feeling imposter syndrome and everything else. And I love the audience. Um, what was that? That was actually, um, that was actually Deidre, who was like, well, well, I can't quote her, but she had a very <laughs> spicy response. And, you know, we've been talking about that all it. week. What advice <laughs> would you give someone who are just starting that leadership journey? Yeah, I mean, I think, there's a lot, of course, a lot of advice, but one thing is to not define leadership as this like distant, far off attainment. It's not a position. It's not years of experience. It's not managing other people. Um, I think we tend to kind of define being a leader as this like far off destination and then we lose out on the opportunities to lead right here and now. And so even for the high school students I've worked with, I'm always about like, well, how can you lead? You are a leader right now. Um, so how, what does that mean? How can you, how, what do you want to do? And so really kind of first owning it um, early and, and really thinking about the tools that you need to really step into your own power. Um, and I really, I think for me, it's about that untapped power. And so um, particularly for those early in careers, you know, you, you can be overlooked just based off of years of experience. And so how can you leverage your, and think about your vision or the ways that you have, you know, natural strengths or your kind of the cultures that you bring in, that just kind of the other tools and, and knowledge that you have to, um, make a change or to, you know, to lead, to really think about what are these micro moments that you can practice that leadership and then think about what that means for you. And so I just want folks to know that it's not, you know, that we can right here, right now, all of us right here are are leading. Um, and, and for those that are starting their careers, you can do that too. Um, so that's my. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Jenny. Vasquez Newman for being here at Soul Thursdays. I think you're going to get some questions in the chat for you guys. So if you got questions for Jenny, Dr. Jenny, please type them in the chat. I've seen a few. And what we're going to do is um, pause for a few minutes for a Soul Thursdays commercial break as a part of our new segment before we go to Dr. Rhonda Maddox. And I want to keep saying it after read it each time. And here at Soul Thursdays, I want to let you guys know that all of the work we're doing is supported by you know, probably that bug there, but supporters, volunteers like you, um, it's been asking the chat, hey, 
if you want to purchase and support Soul Thursdays, how do you purchase a copy of our Getting Started in Podcasting Guide? Tamika's going to drop that in the chat to where you guys can purchase that guide. You actually go to the website, southernsoulthursdays.com, right slash store. Or if you go to southernsoulthursdays.com at the top, you'll see store. But I want to thank you to Andre for being one of our sponsors. And essentially, we do this quick sponsor segment for um, supporters like um, Andre. He's been around for a while. We vetted his services. We understand the work that he do. And we just want to kind of talk to Andre for just a few minutes before we go to Dr. Rhonda um, about the work he does. How you doing, Andre? Welcome. Uh, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Awesome, dude. Thank you for being here for one of our mental health shows. And I'm excited because before Dr. Rhonda gets started, you know, I'm just excited about some of the entrepreneurial work that you've been doing in the mental health space. Do you mind telling us about who you are and the work you're doing and how um, the audience can support you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm Andre Smith. I'm founder of Chosen. Um, I'm, I want to redesign and change the culture of how we consume uh, mental health. And so um, you know, my, kind of my journey to creating uh, Chosen was just around my own personal journey and my and my own personal journey in mental health. Uh, I didn't go till I was in my 30s, not because I really had anything against therapy, but it just wasn't something that was kind of talked at my kitchen table. And so I wanted to uh, be a part of the change that I wanted to see. And so um, the great thing about entrepreneurship, it, it allows you to to go out and be a part of that change. Awesome. Awesome. So if you don't mind dropping in the chat, just letting us know how we can follow you and tell us, you know, in this application that you've created, what should the users expect? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So my goal has always been to create an end-to-end solution for a person's uh, uh, emotional and mental health. And so if you think about some of uh, the user experiences of an Uber, a Spotify, it has a great user experience. But like, if you think about our healthcare system and our, and especially our mental health, um, the user experience is pretty pretty terrible. And so, I really wanted to you know dig into understand like why is after we've spent billion dollars over this past decade in mental health, why has there only been a five percent improvement? And and if you look at the user experience, you can kind of understand why. Um, you know, when you compare it to the user experience that we get on Airbnb or Spotify or Uber, um, you know, you can have a great end-to-end solution that just makes it really easy. And so um, uh, the hardest thing was figuring out how, where do I start? And so from a stigma standpoint, you know, if you lead with mental health, well, you're already going to turn off a segment of people um, that are just like, you know what, I, I don't know enough about that. To, to even want to click on it, to even investigate it. And so I really figured out, like, let's start with, um, you know, what, what would make you the best version of yourself? And everybody likes to uh, think about relationship goals, and you can have relationship goals um, beyond just your romantic relationship. You can have them with your friends, you can have them with your family, and you can have them with yourself. And so I really started with the relationship goals. Um, they can choose which relationship they want to work on for 30 days. Um, and what three goals that they have within that. And then we send them a, a text message via um, uh, a text message uh, uh, that we call a nudge. And a nudge is just something that uh, is a one to two sentences that, it, that explain how you can get uh, to the goal that you set for yourself. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Andre. And I'm looking forward to checking out. Thank you for being a supporter of Soul Thursdays and one of our sponsors. And I'm looking forward to continuing to work with you and support you. And I'm proud of the work you're doing in the mental health entrepreneurship space. 
Thank you, my brother. Next up, we have our final speaker for the day, which is Dr. Rhonda Maddox. Let's get you unmuted. How are you doing, Dr. Rhonda? I am well. Thank you so much for inviting me. Awesome. Awesome. I'm so excited to see you here because you're just always working, right? I'm like, how in the world? I can't even keep up which time zone you're in. But, you know, I'm just going to not, I got tons of questions, but if you don't mind, reintroduce yourself to me so I can know where you're located. I think you're in the Midwest and tell us about the work you do, Dr. Rhonda. Well, it's easy to to get a little bit lost because for a really long time I was had a, a place in LA in Arkansas, and then I had a place in Arkansas and DC, and now I am in Arkansas and Georgia. <laughs> so it's it's easy to to kind of get get me um have me not figured out. I am a psychiatrist by trade, but I think of myself really as a small town girl from Stamps, Arkansas, grew up in the house that you read about it, and I know why the cage bird sings um, back in the 80s. I remember that because I remember being there when Ronald Reagan was inaugurated. So grew up in my Angelou's house. Um, my reason for wanting to be a doctor had to do with me meeting her when uh, in about 79, she had brought it, she brought a camera crew to our house to record. And as a little girl, I just remember hearing she's an author and thought, well, why would she want to come back to Stamps? Like Stamps was such a small place, but she was bringing this crew down. And so in Stamps, it was one of those places where people, Black people really kind of bowed, right? And so I met this powerful, regal Black woman who had a white camera crew and she was the boss telling them what to do. And in that day, and maybe in this day as well, children were to be seen and not heard. And I remember her lowering her, her stature down and making eye contact with me and asking me, who did I want to help when I grew up? And most people ask, who do you want, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? But who do I want to help? And so she had all these impatient looking people like hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And she didn't have a care in the world. She was looking me eyeball to eyeball. And while I don't remember what I said that day, what I do remember is she made me feel seen. And so fast forward seven or eight years later, when I finally read her book and I realized this is the house that I grew up in that she's writing about. And when I got to the end of the book and I saw her beautiful brown face and I saw that she was a doctor, I said, I want to be a doctor one day. Now, mind you, I didn't realize she was an honorary doctor that may have changed the course of my career trajectory. But at that moment to see that that woman who was the boss of all of those people was a doctor, the ceiling shattered. And that was the day that I decided I wanted to be a doctor. Awesome. Awesome. That is a beautiful story. Now I know why you love your coffee mug so much. You mind telling the audience about your coffee mug? <laughs> this is a this is a coffee mug that was sent to me by Alicia Bonting Designs. I've never actually met Alicia. We spoke once in a chat room and when she found out that I was from Arkansas and that I lived in Maya Angelou's home, she had done this black excellence um, cup and she sent it to, she sent it to, she reached out to me and asked for my address and I was like, 
Hmm. And then she's like, okay, okay, I'm not a weirdo. I wanted to gift you with something. And it has been one of the best gifts that I've received. And I really, really love it. I drink out of it frequently. It's, as you know, you, <laughs> you see me with it frequently. <laughs> yes. And I was like, what is it with the cup? Now it all makes sense. Yes. An- another thing that I know you're proud of is that you are currently president of the Arkansas Medical, Dental and Pharmaceutical Association. Tell us about that and what inspired you to take that role. Well, I, it's interesting because I just remembered that about 25 years ago, I said, when I turn 50, I'm going to be the president of that organization. And I forgot about that until literally probably about a month ago. And I was really in the business of just doing all that I could to destigmatize mental illness. And so when the, op- the opportunity kept coming up, they kept approaching me about it. And I was like, nope, 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 nope. Got stuff to do, da 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 And finally, I'm one of those people who I-, I really believe in divine opportunities. And so the lady approached me again and I said to her, I'm not going to do it, but I will find you someone who will. And if in the next year I can't find you someone who will, I will. Now, in my mind, that meant I wasn't, right? (laughs) But I couldn't find anyone. And so I'm a person of my word. I value integrity. And I said, I will do it. Well, what I did not know, but God knew, was that there would be a pandemic. And all across the world, and especially in Arkansas, mental health would be the thing. And so there was no greater time for me to be leading this amazing organization interprofessional organization of doctors, um, pharmacists, dentists, then the minute that I was leading and really addressing their mental health, the mental health needs of the providers, because while everybody in the world was suffering, we were not immune to it and really pouring into them and saying, you know, we started meeting every Saturday. Do you know how tough it is to get doctors to come together every Saturday? We were meeting every Saturday virtually because we were scared just like you were. And it was my job really to say, we can do this. Don't give up, get rest, set boundaries, get sleep, eat. And I wasn't just saying that to them. I was saying it to myself as well. We got to practice what we preach. Wow, that's pretty cool. So it seems as though you kind of got grafted in and as you would call it, divine purpose. Thank you for sharing that. You know, with your work, you've worked, you mentioned this non-stigmatizing or destigmatizing, you know, the portrayal of mental health and popular medicine, I mean, popular media. So you've worked with Hollywood writers, producers, and I, I'm, I'm excited that you did that. But tell us about what that means. When you, What stigmas are out there that you feel definitely need to be addressed? Well, I'll tell you, I grew up hearing from my mother in a Southern town, Black people don't have the luxury of being depressed. Black people can't call into work. You got to get up and go. It matters not what you feel like. And so I grew up hearing that mental health was not a real thing. And when, while I was in medical school, while I wanted to be a psychiatrist, here's the thing, like deep down, I didn't believe in psychiatry and I didn't believe in mental health, even though I said that's what I was doing. And it wasn't until my mother died um, that I suffered great depression. And I mean depression to where I was thinking about killing myself every day throughout the day. And I remember my dean said, hey, I think you came back too soon. I think you're depressed. 
And in my mind, it was like he had called me a crack whore, right? Like, what do you need? But I wasn't brushing my teeth. I wasn't getting dressed. I wasn't going to class. I was thinking about killing myself every day. Classic case of what depression looks like while I was in fact saying, I'm not depressed. What do you mean? So I didn't even know what depression was. And I remember him saying, I think you need to see someone. And so I'm smiling and I said, okay. But in my mind, I'm thinking, are you nuts? What? I have the Lord and that's all I need, right? And so he picked up the phone. He called a psychiatrist, miracle. She answers the phone. Anybody who's ever tried to get a psychiatrist on the phone knows that's like, you don't do that. And then not only did he pick up, she pick up the phone, but she said, I will see her today. Miracle number two, you see a psychiatrist two or three months later. You don't see them the same day. And so I went to see her and sure enough, I actually had depression, but I didn't believe in depression and I didn't believe in medicine and I didn't believe in any of that stuff. I believe you take it to the Lord in prayer and he works it out. And so I really had to unlearn what I had learned my whole life. And I remember the lady saying to me, if what you are doing now is working, then keep doing it. Now she knew darn well what I was doing right then was not working or I wouldn't be seeing her. But I had a lot on the line because I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't do this. I couldn't, didn't have the energy. And I was about to flunk out of medical school. If you remove the element that I'm about to flunk out of medical school, I never would have got treatment. But because I was about to flunk out of medical school and I, I graduated at the top of my class when I was 16, my entire identity was wrapped up in being the smart one. And now all of a sudden I'm failing. And so I'm having this identity crisis. The person I would normally go to is my mom. She's dead. I'm mad at God, you know, and now they're telling me I'm freaking depressed. Like I was not feeling that. But guess what? She was right. It wasn't working for me. And she said, I'm not asking you to marry the medicine. Just date it. Take it out for coffee. And sure enough, I got better. And I got better quickly, like within the month. So I've gone years with depression and it was, she was able to treat it within a couple of months. And then I nailed that freaking exam, right? And so, I, but if it had, if I wasn't about to lose everything and I wasn't in all that debt, you can't just leave medical school after three years of medical school loans and then go and work at Taco Bell. <laughs> And so I had a lot to lose, you know? Wow. Speechless. But I'll tell you why. I've often wondered, being a advocate for mental health, and when I talk to people and I see what I can only describe as a mental block, I said, well, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's okay. It's mental health. And then I see this mental block. And I often wonder, I'm like, I wonder what they're thinking. I wonder what's blocking the information for getting to them. Your story is a story that's so crystal clear. It paints the picture. You had a lot of reasons, right? Your mom did this and you had the relationship with the Lord and you was in church. But then it came this critical point in life where those things begin to change. Thank you for sharing that story. Since then, you've been busy. You've been speaking for, let's see, um, you've been um, of working for, advocate, I mean, supporting elected officials, deans, United States House of Representatives, um, John um, Dingle. Um, you've been a speaker for organizations such as National um, Medical Association. I, I think that's and 
the American Public Health Association. You've been busy. Tell us about some of the topics you spoke on and how you have used these organizations to continue to get your message out. Yeah. And so I will I'll pivot just a little bit because I think you asked me something about media. And I don't know that I answered that question, but when I was invited to speak to a church group and I had been sinning greatly because they invited me to talk to the teenagers. Now, you know, it takes it. it look, that's a rough crowd. And so I was invited to talk about the very unsexy topic of suicide. And I remember being at like the 22 mark between Little Rock and Conway. And I was just like, Lord, how do I open? I got to keep their attention. And I was reminded of the fact that when my mother was pregnant with me, she attempted suicide. And so I had been, I was a third year resident in psychiatry and I had been hearing my entire life. The reason your head is so bald is because your mom drank Mr. Clean, but it never occurred to me that that was a suicide attempt. And so I opened with that and I had the attention of those teenagers. And I went back um, the next day when I got home that night, a medical student had died by suicide and then kill, had killed his wife and then died by suicide. And I knew who it was. And so the next day I'm talking to my attending about that. And then I'm also talking about the fact that I just talked about suicide to this group. And I was sharing with her my mother's story. And she said, hey, will you do a commercial for that? And I was like, baby, black people don't tell their business like that. <laughs> you know, I was more respectful, but that's not what we do. And she said, would you just consider thinking about it? And so um, I talked with my brother and I talked because it wasn't my story to tell. That was my mother's story. And so I got the OK to share that story. And, and remember, I've grown up here and we don't tell family business. And then I'm in a profession that says you don't self-disclose. You be a blank slate. So I'm not in this space where we tell our business in my profession or in my family. But then there's this thing in the Bible that says, by the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony, do we overcome? So that's in contrast to what I've been taught. So I, I do this, this commercial and the commercial is 30 seconds. My name is Rhonda Maddox. I'm a resident physician. I didn't choose psychiatry. I was born into it. When my mother was pregnant with me, she had such severe depression that she attempted suicide. We lived. Now I devote my life to preventing the tragedy of suicide. 30 seconds. And then I had um, vulnerability regret. What was I thinking? Oh my gosh, you ruined your career, right? And so then something crazy happened. I would be at the grocery store. And a woman would walk up to me and she'd say, you told my story. And I remember one time I was talking to my real estate agent and she said, I was in my bedroom with a gun to my head. And I said, God, if I'm not supposed to do this, give me a sign. And that commercial came on. And she heard my voice in that commercial. And that's why she didn't kill herself. What she did not know was how close I came to not telling that story because of what I was concerned about. And so I realized the crazy, ridiculous impact that sharing our stories and being vulnerable could have on letting other people share their stories and be okay with getting treatment. And that's how I got involved in media. And so I was in Arkansas and I was doing this stuff, research, and I went to LA. They said, hey, she's involved in media research. Now in Arkansas, that was, I was talking to clergy about Da, 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 da. But in LA, when I said that, I had a meeting with Neil Bauer, executive producer of Law and Order Special Victims Unit. Neil is creating a character with HIV. 
and he wants me to consult on a neuropsychology role. And, and I'm thinking, but in my spirit, I'm thinking, but HIV, that's not your thing. And so Neil is talking to me, but I'm having a conversation in my own head. And so I was like, well, why do you want to do that? And it was kind of like me and the Lord talking. I was like, it can open doors. And as clear as you and I are talking, I heard, I open doors no man can close. And, and so then I say to Neil, thank you for thinking of me. However, I don't think I'm the best fit for that. And my director, this white guy, I can see him saying, And Neil is processing in his head because he's like the guy who is doing law and order, special victims unit, ER, private practice. He's not accustomed to know. People want to get to him. And here I am, this little black girl, not even in the crux of her career saying, no, thank you. Thank you, but no, thank you. And so Neil said, might I ask why you're not interested? And I said, my interest is in mental health. And destigmatizing that. And he said, well, let me get you connected. So that no to him on something that I was, that I was honored he thought of me, but I wasn't interested, opened up so many opportunities. And let me just tell you, I have a non-disclosure right now, but I'm working with a studio that is crazy wicked around some stuff that all the fellows in here would be really impressed with. And I've had an opportunity um, through that one encounter to work on shows like ER, Brothers and Sisters, 90210, and really change the world's perception around mental health. And if you guys are old enough, you remember the movie Philadelphia and what Philadelphia did for our perception with HIV. Mm-hmm. But I get to do as it relates to changing how the world sees people who are living with mental illness and that you can do it successfully. Because it's not them, which is what we think, it's all of us. Awesome, awesome. What a beautiful story of getting into media and staying in the media. And I love that note. Because you would stay into your course, right? You were like, yeah, I could do that and fake it, but that's not my calling. And I wanted to, but it just was not... It just wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked. Awesome. Well, I love that story because I know when I see you like all over the internet and everything, I'm like, what? How did she go from that? You know, because it's a whole different career path, you know? And then, you know, and I was like, and then she's so down to earth, right? So I love your story because it begins to paint that picture of being yourself and doing your own thing. And those things begin to happen. Thank you for sharing that. Tell us this. You actually have a podcast that you host. I guess it's mostly Facebook Live and it's entitled I'm Not Crazy. But <laughs> tell us about that. Tell us about that and how we can follow you. Tamika's going to drop it in the chat. How can we catch you online live to follow your show, I'm Not Crazy, But? So, whenever, you know, as a psychiatrist, I'm asking people about their most intimate details. I'm asking, you know, have you ever heard voices that other people can't hear? Have you seen things that other people can't see? I'm asking all of these questions, right? Tell me about your anxiety. Tell me about your mood. And so they are processing in their mind. And I can see like their computer's working. I tell her this, she's going to think I'm crazy, right? And so some of them will actually lead with, I'm not crazy, but I have been seeing stuff out of the corner of my eye. And so I would have all of these these quit these conversations with these people who present well. Many of them presented well. They presented um, good-looking guys, 
good looking gals, you know, doing great stuff, smoking a little reefer. And let me just tell you, reefer, I don't care what they're telling you in the news, that THC level they have is causing psychosis and suicidal ideation. So these folks are saying, I just smoke weed, that's it. And baby, it, 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 it causes some problems. So getting psychotic, getting suicidal, all this stuff. And they say to me these words, I'm not crazy, but... And so I heard that so many times. And for the, the first part of my career, I free I was talking about why you shouldn't say crazy. Well, I just embraced it. It was kind of like how the Black community embraced the N-word after a while. <laughs> you know, it's like, if this is what the world is saying, let me talk to them on their level. And I remember this lady. She she came from a really prominent family um, of, of, I can't, well, from a really, really prominent family. And so she, I've been seeing her for about five years. And, she, and I was giving her my best. And my patients get better in three to six months. But I've been seeing her for five years and she was not better. And so I asked her, are you taking your medicine? Yes. And I said, are you sure? Yes. And I picked up the phone. I called the pharmacy. And sure enough, they said she hadn't picked up that medicine in months. And so I said, I, you know, I love you. But I'm going to tell you something. You, you chasing your husband around the yard with an axe. Your husband is an attorney. His, his family is da-da-da-da-da, you know. And uh, she said, she, I said, you're going to tell those people, I did this because I have bipolar disorder. And then you're going to think you're going to get off because you have bipolar disorder. And then they're going to call me. And I'm going to say that each and every time I offer you medicine, I told you what the risk of you not taking those medicines were, including suicidal ideations and homicidal ideations. And with foreknowledge and thought, you chose not to take that medicine. And I'm going to tell them to prosecute you to the full extent of the law and then give you your medicine at the highest dose. She's not the medicine you would. I said, yes, I would. And yes, I already have. And so one month later, she came back to me and she was just great. And she said, Dr. Max, it only took you five years to get me better. I said, no, darling, it only took you five years to listen to me. It took you one month to get better. Hmm. <laughs> so, that, so that whole, I'm not crazy, but, you know, and, and so she said to me, I said, why don't you want to take your medicine? And she said to me, I don't want people to think I'm crazy. I said, baby girl. You running around the yard chasing your husband with an axe. People know you crazy. Take your medicine and give them something to think about. Okay. <laughs> Let them have to wonder if you're crazy or not. So in answer to your question, you can find me on blackdoctor.org on Facebook. I'm not crazy. It's about all the stuff you guys are talking about on the back porch, uh, in your houses that you don't say in open company. We talk about it in open company and we talk about it the way you talk about it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> also, OMG, you know, I, I mean, I love it. I mean, I am here for it. It is amazing how you were able to reach her. I was actually talking to a therapist and I think we were talking about, oh, it was actually um, Dr. Uh, Inche, and actually she's on here now. And I remember I'd ask her about why it was important the topic of Black ADHD. I said, I know the audience is going to be thinking, why we got to have a Black ADHD? Why we just can't do ADHD? And what she told me, I totally appreciated. She says, well, you need somebody who's going to, um, what does that say? A therapist or a doctor who can see you. A mm -hmm. therapist or a doctor who can connect with you mm -hmm. and who can understand and I thought about it. I said, you know what? Anytime I've ever seen a doctor or a therapist and they, I feel like they didn't get me. 
real talk. I was seeing this one doctor and he's like, well, I see, I'm, I'm telling y'all my business. He's like, I see um, strippers in Atlanta. All my clients are strippers in Atlanta. And that's what I do. And I'm like, huh? And that's what he did. Right. But I was like, I don't think he going to connect with me. And it just kind of hit me because one, I've never heard of a doctor say that, but that was his audience. And I can only imagine that for some way he connected with that audience. But it's connecting with me, who was a brother who see life like this and do things like this and very intellectual in this. And I was like, yeah, he doesn't really connect with me. And it was an interesting story. But Dr. Inishay, welcome. Thank you for being here. And I'm glad you're here because I was just thinking about you. Last question. And then what we're going to do is we're going to pivot. Go ahead. What was your, your thing about ADHD? Did you oh, make a point? I didn't finish. <laughs> I, like, I want to hear this. That was good. Well, um, she, she's here and she can probably, I'm going to bring her on and kind of speak for okay. it later because I don't want to um, chop up her words. But essentially the core thing is it's important for you to have a therapist that relates to you or understand you. She, by hand, is ADHD, ADHD coach. And essentially she begins to realize that there were not a lot of representation when it comes to ADHD as a topic we'll talk about is there were, you know, young white boys falling out their chairs, but not necessarily black women, not even white women. Right. A lot of people, um, women would be moms before they even discover that they had ADHD because they would see it in their children. So she talked about the ability to relate and connect with your audience or in this case, your patients. And I really, really began to feel that because in the work she does as ADHD coach, it allows her to understand and connect with her audience. So yes. that's the story. But and you got to bring up because I want to meet her. I love Oh, her. you want to meet her? Well, she is here tonight, and we're definitely going to co connect you. And Inishe, if you don't mind holding tight, we'll give you a microphone shortly. So we want to do a few things before we go to the audience. The audience, you got a unique segment tonight. On the topic of mental health and social justice, what we're going to do is give the audience a chance to participate. I just put in a chat, an article to a New York Post article, and it describes what recently happened to a young man by the name of Jordan Neely. He was on the top 50 list of homeless people with urgent need for help before his subway demise. So be thinking about that as I wrap up question with Dr. Rhonda. And Dr. Rhonda, what advice do you have for individuals who may be hesitant to seek out mental health care? Mm -hmm. And what can be done to reduce the stigma surrounding mental illness? So I'm going to say this in the Black community, because you definitely get that context. Mm -hmm. So what advice will you give for someone who may be hesitant to seek out mental health care? Mm -hmm. And what can be done to reduce the stigma surrounding mental health in a black community. Yeah. And so the I, I think of it as think about investing in yourself and investing in your future. Because many of the strategies that we learned in our childhood that served us well no longer serve us. And so having a person, you can't get healed in the environment that hurt you. And that's what we many times try to do. We try to get healed by the folks that hurt us. And so stepping out and having a fresh set of eyes, I, I strongly encourage people to go to like therapists for Black girls or psychology directories where you can see the pictures 
and the bios of the individuals so that you can see what resonates with you. And you can type in what your insurance is and your zip code and you can see pictures and they're and, and they'll have who their audiences are and and you can choose from that. But I would say understand that you're not marrying them. If you take them out for therapy for four sessions and it doesn't work out, go somewhere else, you know, and, but you are investing in your future because many times when we don't get the help that we need, we try to numb it with food, um, liquor, uh, drugs, and and that is a short-term fix that then bounces back like a rattlesnake, right? And poisons you. So do the hard work early so that you can live off the fruit of your labor later, you know? Uh, and as it relates to um, what can we do? I love me some Arthur Ashe, the tennis Olympian, gold star medal, block and block, um, Wimbledon winner long ago, who said, start, use what you have, start where you are and do what you can. Many times we think, oh, this is so big. Somebody needs to do something. And I say to you, turn to your left, turn to your right and look at your neighbor like the people at church and say, you are somebody in your best Jesse Jackson voice. Listen, start where you are. That can be um, on a board. That can be in the fraternities, the sororities, your churches, your rotary clubs or whatever. Have these types of conversations, just like what you're doing today and let people know that it's okay. One of the perks of the pandemic is that we had people like uh, Michelle Obama, Meghan Merkel, the Duchess, the former president, uh, former first lady talking about their history with depression. Michelle Obama said a little tinge of, of depression. She had a little bit. Meghan Merkel said, I had suicidal ideations while I was pregnant. And it was something that happened in the pandemic that made it okay to not be okay because all of us were struggling. And so after you're well, don't be like the woman with the issue of blood who was just happy to get her healing and go on, but she got out it. And then year, you know, decades, centuries later, we're still talking about the woman who grabbed the hem of his garment and then got whole. But because of that, and because we can read her story, we know that we may be bleeding as well, but we can get whole. And Jerry Simmons, I see your quote, and it's Arthur Ashe, Oh, is that, I don't know if that's the one you're talking about, but Arthur Ashe says, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. And that means basically start in your little, uh, your little space and do what you can. Marvin Gaye, when he saw everything that was going on in the 60s and 70s, he wrote a song, what's going on? His platform was his music and he used his music to do what he did and get everybody to talking about it. So if you are an artist, paint. If you are a shoe, uh, uh, creative, Put some 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 phrase on your your shirts or whatever. But wherever it is, whatever your platform is, use that to get people to talking and thinking. And you don't have to have all the answers, but get the discussion going. And even if it's uncomfortable, did I answer your question? Awesome, awesome. Yes, you did. Thank you, Doctor Rhonda Maddox, for sharing your story, your inspiration. The story of why you love that cup so much. Thank you for being a joy. Thank you for sharing your story. And, you know, here at Soul Thursdays, we definitely um, take vulnerability as a part of saying we create a safe space that allow people to be vulnerable. Thank you for accepting that invitation 
to the safe space. Thank you for accepting the invitation and sharing with us your story that not only has touched people, but continues to touch people. And what I want to do now is kind of pause for a few seconds before we lose you and just kind of get some questions. And Dr. Jenny is still here. So, Dr. Jenny, if you want to, you know, come back online, what we want to do is take some questions from the audience. At the same time, we have Inishe, uh Colsey. Um, and if you're um, able to unmute yourself, I would love to kind of hear your thoughts as we transition about the ADHD um, topic um, as our ADHD coach here at Southern Soul. Let's see here. Add to the spotlight. Let's see. Let's see. There you are. Uh, Inishe, how you doing? I'm so, good. <laughs> add you to the spotlight. I didn't even know you were going to be here. And, and you camera ready, girl. You bad. No, I'm not camera ready, you know, but. I didn't come. I just came to hang out. But you know how much I love to talk. And we started talking about ADHD and mental health. I'm always here for it. Awesome. Well, I just got one question for you. You know, when we you were on the show um, a few weeks ago and it was an awesome show. I mean, people are still here tonight from that show. But you and I were talking about the concept and you may recall the question where we we're talking about the importance of ADHD in the black community and your experience when you walked into it an association and you were the only person of color. And since then, you've been doing this work of ADHD and coaching. Do you mind telling us a little bit about you and why you feel that representation in the ADHD space matter for Black people and people of color? I think representation matters uh, in all spaces, but in particular in the space of ADHD, you know, going to uh, the story I was telling you was I went to the big international ADHD conference and it was in Philadelphia in 2019. Uh, I was helping out with uh, somebody who was having a presentation, actually it was um, somebody who was white. And as I stayed at the conference, you know, because um, this is the thing, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm a psychotherapist. I, I want to correct the record. <laughs> but um I noticed, you know, we're in Philadelphia where it's like a 60% uh, black city and there were, I don't know, 15 black people for four days of an a international conference. And that made no sense to me because you know, I know I had, I found out I had ADHD and I knew I was not the only one. I'm a psychotherapist. A lot of my clients have ADHD. Um, I had to go back when I really saw what ADHD was for adults and apologize to them and change their treatment plans because um, it looks different for us. You know, a lot of times we spend time masking, right? Um, because we're not going to do anything halfway. We really feel like we can't. That perfectionism part, you know, can stop. It can stop everything. It can be, it can be a killer because I really think that that perfectionism piece is why people have physical problems, right? Working yourself to death, not understanding the limitations that, you know, you might have on taking on too many things, taking on other people's things. The fact that the intersectionality of, uh, especially with women, usually, you know, the burdens of people are left at black women's feet. Mm -hmm. And we're used to that. And we pick it up like potato chips and it's not good for us. And there's also that part where you can't take everything on that you think that you should, you think that that's, um, that that's good for you. And because we have a little more limited bandwidth, then you feel really bad when you can't, or 
you have this great superpower that you magically get some things done. And then they think you're magic, right? Which means that they expect all these things to happen all the time. And when you don't, it's, it's, it's that you're pushed off of a cliff that you're, you know, no longer valuable, maybe at your job or maybe with your friends. And so the representation of that is the fact that it's going to show up differently for me. There's just been a study that, um, you know, anxiety shows up as anger for black women, but, you know, we walk into a room and they think we're angry. Right. So, you know, all of that compounded with the fact that the executive functioning, which is what ADHD is. So I'm going to maybe process a little slower. I'm going to uh, have to really think about being on time. That's like my big thing, trying to be on time for something to take all of the energy I have. Um, And other people don't have that. Mm -hmm. But when you're black, if you show up somewhere, then they already they've already expected you to be late. And how that makes you feel and how it stops you from being like a part of the team and how that can then impact every aspect of your life. You can't always you can't always explain that to somebody who doesn't understand what it would be like to be a black person in that in your shoes, because that's why a lot of times there is that misconception where it's just depression or it's just anxiety or you're making that up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> gotten that like and if you are successful because a lot of people with ADHD are very successful then they're like you can't possibly have it because you are a doctor or you are a lawyer or you are many many uh you are a fortune 500 CEO you're the c-suite those are like the, those are the my clients like all my clients are um you know professionals and most of them have been told at some point you cannot have ADHD they just don't believe it and can you imagine going into a physician's office and having them say that? I, I was telling you a story of a friend of mine. She's she's a she is a psychiatrist, but I think she was in her residence. She, you know, if you met her for five seconds, you know that she has ADHD. And so she decided to go get a proper diagnosis, which is what I suggest for every person, because you want to be sure that you're treating the right thing. And so she went in to get a a, a diagnosis, and the, the white doctor looked at her and said, you have a narcissistic personality disorder. And so she said, because you think you can do things. She's in her residency. (laughs) She's doing things. This is what he he put on her. And she was just like devastated. She dropped out for a semester. Thank goodness she, you know, realized that she didn't have to take that on. But those are the things that happen. And so many times that all of my clients come to me generally and say that there's no way I can have these conversations with somebody who just won't understand. You know, the the shorthand we have is the reason why I'm successful with my clients, because I can hear them. I can hear the pain that they have. I can be with that. And then we can also talk about the resilience that they have to be successful with ADHD and then fill in that middle part to, you know, the parts that are holding you back. We'll take care of that. And the parts that are really bolstering you up we're going to take those and use those to make your life great awesome. uh, so the representation part is the part that allows people to be seen to get to that awesome thank you thank you for being here tonight dropping in and sharing with us yet more wisdom back to the audience another commercial break what questions do we have for the audience Tamika? i think there's a few questions in there i know Dr. Kitt wanted to make sure she got access to buy that getting started in podcasting book and make sure you drop that in the chat. But let's see, Tamika, what questions do you have from the um, chat? Actually, there hasn't been. I, 
a specific question yet. Just a lot of people who have been really appreciative of all the information that both of you have been sh- have shared. Um, I think people have feel, felt seen. Um, so I'm looking to awesome. see if awesome. we have no anything questions. in there. Yeah. Okay. Well, no questions. Well, um, we'll give you guys a, another 30, 60 seconds, a couple of questions while I wrap up. Dr. Jenny, what do you think? I mean, it's been a conversation with Dr. Rhonda Maddox, Dr. Jenny, um, what do you think, mm-hmm. Dr. Jenny? Were you kind of soaking it in, too? Because I was just soaking it in. I'm, I try not to talk too much. I'm like, you know, it's my show. I talk every week. But, man, both of you ladies, I was just want to just jump in there and have a whole conversation. What do you think, Dr. Jenny? I mean, I'm just always I'm struck by Thank you, Dr. Maddox, for sharing your story and, and just the impact of storytelling. I think that I'm always left with um it hitting like deeper than, you know, than I expected. And so I appreciate this conversation and this opportunity just to be in this space. Awesome. Awesome. And I see from Dr. Kidd and all this, she says, Dr. Maddox, you are a blessing to many with your story. Dr. Um, Jenny, I look forward to your book, Blessings and Grace to you both for sharing. You have truly preached sermons to the rest of the world this evening. Thank you for you guys. So we're going to pivot. If we don't have any questions for the audience, I mean, for the speakers, then I'll give Dr. Rhonda a chance to kind of wrap up. Any final thoughts, Dr. Rhonda? Anything you wanted to say, didn't get a chance to say? I will say I I so enjoyed what you had to say, um, Dr. Jenny, as you were talking. um, My mind went back to um, in the in the earlier, I think we had three percent um, blacks in medicine in the early 1900s. And now we have, you know, if you round up 6% and, and while we make up, um, you know, just a little less than 20% of the population, we're so few, but when you look at the literature, you know, black babies are dying at three times the rate as whites, but when they're taken care of by black doctors, they live longer, even if it's a complex case they live longer. When you have black patients who have HIV and you know they're dying at six to 14 times higher rates than whites, but if they're taken care of by black doctors, they get treatment earlier, if they get the right treatment. And so it representation matters. Um, and you look at the literature, black doctors spend more time with their, with their patients who are black and they um, black patients accept preventive care more often when their doctors are black and um, patient satisfaction is greater. And so it makes good financial sense. Um, And when we're talking about equity, having representation, not, I mean, somebody said everywhere, I agree, certainly everywhere, but there's something about seeing, you know, I can't tell you how many times black kids saw me and, and said, you're the doctor? And then they were so excited. I work in juvenile justice and I had uh, been recruited for that job for about three years. But now I, I work with kids who are dispro- black people who are disproportionately represented in the juvenile justice system. And their stories are, are horrible. Um, and they are not, now some of them, but for the most part, they are not bad kids, but they have been left to raise themselves because their parents in jail or on substances or whatever. And so when I say to them, when you get out, don't let anybody make you feel badly about the decisions that you've made. Learn from them. 
and it's not a failure if you learn and then choose wiser. And just to be able to look at them and say, I see you, I believe you, and I know you can do better. Because I, you know, somebody cut Michael Jordan from the team. I don't want to be the person to cut Michael Jordan from the team. Even if you 5'2 and you say you want to be an NBA player, I'm like, go ahead, buddy. But you got to get through high school first because I don't know if they recruit from a GED list, right? So let's get you. So I'm just going to use it to get you through high school. So family, as I'm, you know, wrapping this up, what I'm going to say is don't you pour water on anybody's dreams. Be the person who kneels down and looks in the little girl or the little boy's eyes and see them and tell them they can do it. That's it. And if you see a mother who's struggling with her kids and you talking about what time she's coming home, you talk about it if you need to. I don't see why you do. But make sure that you're talking to those babies and talking to them like they have good sense and like their future kings and queens because they are. Thank you, Calvin, for this opportunity. I so appreciate this platform and what you're doing with us. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you, Dr. Rhonda Maddox. Thank you, Dr. Jenny. There is a question in the chat uh, as we wrap up. Next up, we got K Boogie, the real K Boogie for 15 minutes of funk. Feel free to go if you got to go. Um, one question that I love from the chat that I would love, uh, you know, just have some community dialogue around since we ran out of time. And I love what Jerry asked. He says, how can we intentionally interview therapists to find the right one? Well, I tell you one of my jokes, you know, I'm, I'm going to let the doctor speak if, before they leave. But one thing I enjoyed is that I know I was talking to a therapist and um, and I remember uh, this one brother, because at first I was going for a black man. I'm like, I, I think I'm going to try a black man. I just want to see if I can relate to the brother. And he told me something and 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 I know he knew it right and he meant right. And he, you know, I'm pretty sure his research or whatever was on. He said, but I don't know if you should trust that intuition that you must understand I'm a country boy. Now, my intuition is all I got. And when he told me, don't trust my intuition, I was like, man, I'm about to get a new doctor. Now, I'm sure he was right, but I didn't feel like he was right for me that day. Now, that's my take. When he told me that, I was over. But anyway, that's just my opinion. I'm going to leave it to Dr. Rhonda. If Dr. Rhonda, you want to correct me at all or, or, or try to attempt that question, how do you intentionally interview a therapist and know that they're right for you? One thing that we have now that that we didn't have back when I was first getting a psychiatrist, I have a black psychiatrist, um, but we have social media. And so you can find you can follow people's Instagram, their Twitter accounts and see, you know, is this person uh, is this my person or not um, get a good feel, you know, um, therapy, therapy for black girls. Like I said, therapist for Black girls, you can go over there. I frequently ask, you know, I say talk to your primary care doctor and say, hey, have you done this? You can go to Black Psychiatrist of America. You can go to just type in Black Psychiatrist of, of wherever you are, uh, Black Therapist of wherever you are, and names will start popping up. And then you do you search them out like you would if you were going to to buy a car. You go buy a car, you wouldn't just go into the first car. You do comparison shop. Check out our vitals. Check out, you know, what people are saying. If 17 people say that that doctor is a jackass, then maybe you don't want to go to him. (laughs) I love it. I love it. And she cleaned me up, but she let y'all know she's from um, the Midwest at the same time. Because, you know, I'm from Texas. She's from uh, Arkansas. And that's just the way we flow. Appreciate your honesty. I also like the way Dr. Maddox, you described it as how, you said you ain't got to marry them. You can date them. Right. And I remember when I first got started, I felt like I needed to be with that one therapist forever. Right. And I don't know why that made no sense to me. It was just whatever. 
but I love the way you describe it. You can just check them out. So thank you, ladies, for sharing that. Thank you for joining us at Southern Soul Livestream Talk Show. Join us weekly at soullivestream.com. If you're joining us live, we'll take a quick music break and then come back for a discussion with the audience.